Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to another episode of Nightlight. Hope everyone had a good weekend and is off to a great start to the week. Uh, has, has anyone attended a Civil War reenactment? Uh, the actors have accurately depicted or du- duplicated their uniforms, the commands and maneuvers uh, demonstrate what transpired on the battlefield, and such a uh, faithful uh, recreation displays uh, for the audience the flaw of one side strategy and how the other side took advantage of you know the weakness and you know the lesson is how uh, you know the battle was lost and you know eventually uh, one side uh, won the war. Or in another example, uh, did you see the, uh, I think it was an episode of Cheers, uh, and it was one of the uh, lady characters had a date with a Elvis impersonator and Cliff Norman and the other bartenders were a little perplexed and then the Elvis character said, He's not an Elvis impersonator. He's an Elvis inspirator. And he said, hey, sweetie, could you make a peanut butter and banana sandwich for the king? Thank you. Thank you very much. And everyone you know, warmed up to him. And you know, happy ending to the episode. So uh, and my point is, if you weren't old enough to... See Elvis's comeback special, or to travel to Hawaii for the Aloha concert. Uh, you know, maybe you've seen an Elvis tribute band at a local venue. Um, yeah, the hours of studying Elvis's vocal techniques and moves may have made you more aware of his intimidating stage presence and you know if he uh, 
does, you know, as I say, American Trilogy, uh, you can get, gain a greater appreciation of Elvis's often overlooked gospel songs. So my friend Jimmy Blue is our guest tonight. He is a Jimi Hendrix historian. He is the front man for the Kiss the Sky Hendrix tribute band. He is a DJ radio host in the New York City area. He's a music teacher, and he has an audio video studio. And you can learn more about Jimmy by going to kissthesky.tribute.com or newdivinitysfc.com or come out to Jurgles uh, this Thursday night uh, just north of Pittsburgh, right off of I-79, and hang out with us. Hi, Jimmy. How are you doing? Hey, how are you? And I appreciate you having me on. Oh, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you're here. Um, and and before uh, we get in, any further into the show, you know, I do want to just take a minute to thank Gwen Toline from ghtcommunications.com for connecting us earlier this year. So, uh, uh, Jimmy, how, how did you become so interested in Jimi Hendrix? Uh, actually, I was a student at Performing Arts High School in Manhattan. That's the high school from the movie Fame. And mm-hmm. it was located on uh, 46th Street in Manhattan in Times Square. So uh, I entered the school actually doing a James Brown tribute that I was doing since I was in junior high school. So I was basically into soul music and doing a lot of that, even the first year, year and a half of high school. And then there was this uh, girl, of course, it was always a girl, right? (laughs) There's a girl who comes to school uh, that, I really wanted to meet and, you know, get next to. And she was wearing this button, this big button, yellow button that said, uh, official Jimi Hendrix fan club want to reprise records. Now, I had heard of Jimi Hendrix because I was into Sly uh, back then. And basically, I didn't know too much about him. Uh, So to get closer to her, I actually went up with her one time to Warner Brothers and joined the official fan club through uh, the secretary of uh, Mike Jeffries, which is Jimmy's manager's office. And basically that's how it all started for me. And then what happened, what made me switch my major from trumpet and trombone in performing arts to guitar uh, in my junior year of, of high school was that I went by a friend's house. We used to go by uh, people's house and partake in things that I'm not going to mention on the air. (laughs) You know, have a good time. And uh, Mm -hmm. we went by this one friend's house, and just so happens her uncle came home and caught us. And uh, so we in the room. It was uh, had he had this psychedelic bedroom and. you know, and then she she was actually in his bedroom. So so this guy came home unexpectedly, 
and he caught us. And so we're saying, okay, that's it for us, the end of the world for us. And he actually hung out with us a little bit. Then he took us in his editing room. He was one of the photographers for Monterey Pop Festival. Wow. So this guy had the raw footage. I saw a lot of raw footage of the acts that were on in Monterey Pop. We're sitting in the room, and I'm waiting to see Otis Redding because I was still leaning towards soul music. And so we're going through. He's, like, scrolling through uh, the Who and all of these people, and yeah, I wasn't too much into rock back then. And then all of a sudden comes up to Hendrick. Yeah, I'm here. Mark? Yes. You're set you're set to go again. I don't know what happened. Hmm. Okay. Okay, uh, uh, J- Jimmy, so, so so you you saw the uh raw footage from Monterey and it, when you you got to seeing uh Jimmy uh, J- Jimmy's performance. Uh, that's where the call dropped, or s- something happened. What, um, okay, maybe pick up from there. Well, no, that's basically it. That's I said. That's what I want to oh. do for the rest of my life. Then that, that's basically it. That's the whole story there. Okay, so so you know, la- last month um, I saw you and. Um, Zoso, the Led Zeppelin tribute band at Fairmont's uh, Palatine Park, and you did about an hour from uh, over uh, Jimi Hendrix's uh, uh, career, and but but the first time I saw you. Performers uh, at the Bearsville Theater on and to commemorate uh, Jimmy's birthday, and you did a, a live stream, and you, you uh, recreated um, serv- uh, about four sets from uh, some of his legendary uh, concerts. Um, where where did you get that idea? Can, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the importance of each of, of the shows that that you uh, uh, do, and uh, you know the different uh, musicians that you have uh, come out and uh, play with you? Uh, well, yes, but even before I, I, I get into that. It's more uh, just the sky is in a tribute band. We call ourselves the Jimi Hendrix Re-Experience. And I always say to the audience jokingly that you guys didn't get it the first time because <laughs> it went by so quick. So we're going to make sure you get it this time. And the reason why I say that is because if you've gone to a Broadway play and you've seen, you were mentioning this earlier in your opening uh, about the Elvis thing. If you've seen Beatlemania, and you've seen, like, a, a night with Janice on Broadway. That's what Kiss the Sky is. We recreate Hendrix's iconic concerts from before he got famous at Monterey Pop. When he was in England, we do Monterey Pop. 
We do his Fillmore years, including the Band of Gypsies, where he used other musicians. We do his Woodstock concert at some of the festivals we play outside. And we also do the final Cry of Love tour. So we recreate all of the important uh, iconic concerts in full-era costume and full-era equipment. Light show, videos in between. The show that you saw at uh, the festival you were talking about recently, which also Mm -hmm. we wasn't able to do that. We just came out and just just did an hour uh, experience set because we were opening for Zoso. But that's what we usually do when we do the theaters, uh, like we'll be doing the Jurgles and things like that. But uh, even at Jurgles, we won't be doing the full, um, the full production that we do. We'll be doing a couple of things. Okay, you know, with with Monterey, uh, uh, the concert at, at uh, uh, Monterey, that Jimmy was getting pretty established in a, after he had uh Chaz Chandler took him to England uh Jimmy honed his craft uh there and is uh, he returned to America for his you know like debut for an American audience but you know, he's uh Introduced by uh, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, uh, that seemed to have been uh, what about three, four year uh, relationship with the Stones. Um, who who were some of the other people that really seemed to have? Uh, um, become friends, nurtured him, become friends with uh, Jimmy while he was in England? Uh, Okay, the England years, that would be uh, the most important friends, I always say, is Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Uh, They were Hendrix's best friends. A lot of people are not aware of that. Matter of fact, Paul McCartney doesn't do a concert to this day where he doesn't give homage of at least a good five or ten minutes to Hendrix. That's how close they were. And, um, yeah, like you mentioned, a few of them, uh, people from the Stones and things like that, uh, you know, people like that. There were so many. And even coming here to America, uh, I'm going to, we'll, if I have time, I'll touch on some of the famous progressive jazz musicians uh, who will mm-hmm. befriended Hendrix really closely, and one person that will connect this whole show, Barbara, uh, especially Barbara's website, uh, to Jimi Hendrix, which people are not used to thinking of him in a spiritual sort of light. But one person, Timothy Leary, they were uh, really good friends, and I, I know a lot of people today think of Timothy Leary as a wacko, but keep in mind, Timothy Leary was involved in the Gurdjieff work uh, through Will, Willem Nyland, who is – I'm involved in the, in the work. That's why I know this – who was uh, basically close to Gurdjieff. So, I mean, you, don't, you, might, you might want to look at this guy differently now that I've said that because he's responsible for Jimmy getting more into the Gurdjieff Foundation. 
as well. So right there, right, you know, that's, that's a whole show in itself, what I just said. You know what I mean? So there was a lot of important people who befriended this guy because of about a year and a half before Jimmy died, he was the highest paid rock performer, even more than the Beatles and the Stones of his time. So he attracted a lot of people to him. Now, true, most of these people were left a lot to be desired, but um, some heavy people were, were in his uh, satellite, let's say. Okay. When you're talking about uh, George uh, Gurdjieff, um, what are some of the uh, tenets of the, the movement that he founded? The, the basic tenet that, that I could say very briefly is we are not all we can be. And that through certain work on oneself, we can at least come to attain that potential through the work. We can't leave it uh, by itself. Nature develops us to a certain point and then leads us to either degenerate or stay as we are or to uh, develop further. And that's what the work is all about. And uh, one a good example is, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm involved in something internally to keep me present so I don't shift into automatic pilot. That's one of the basic tenets right there. Okay. It, it seems like there's like a, what element of – Eastern mysticism uh, behind uh, the the philosophy, and what I noticed is I I was preparing for this show was how. How many? Uh, how much Jimmy wrote about uh, religious themes? <coughs> uh, excuse me. Um, and women, uh, you know, angelic uh, savior type figures. Uh, uh, God is a woman. It's where it, it, it seems like Jimmy is uh, going back farther to you know, his African heritage, and, and we get into his you know a little bit of his Cherokee heritage uh, too. But is Gurdjieff's uh, philosophy help? Helping Jimmy to uh, you know, just uh, look at some of the uh, like spiritual concepts that 
that uh, uh, from legends of Atlantis and Egypt. Um, actually, it, it's interesting you said Egypt because Gurdjieff uh, has a philosophy that's called the fourth way. There are three traditional uh-huh. ways, and uh, Gurdjieff is basically the fourth way. There's the way of the fakir, like you see in India. There's the way of the monk, uh-huh. and there's the way of the yogi. They each are, are ways of development, and they each leaves something out. Well, Gurdjieff is the fourth way that brings these three together and, and also some. And Gurdjieff always says that his fourth way teaching is esoteric Christianity, thousands of years that existed before we know Christianity in ancient Egypt. That's where he says his fourth way teachings come from. Okay. It, it, we... If the uh, listeners heard Barbara's live show yesterday with uh, Scott uh, Crichton or uh, are looking for something to do after tonight's show, uh, yesterday's talk was uh, really very interesting about uh, uh, the, the pyramids and he did bring up uh during the the discussion about some of these uh you know like the e- egyptian scribes and uh i think there was a, an example from greenland and uh plato or uh you know a sumerian author had, had uh documented some kind of like uh, pole shift and where the sun was uh, rising in the west and setting in the east. Uh, there were some interesting uh, uh, unnatural things that were documented a, a long time ago. And it, it, there was a, a passage in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 24, where he's talking about uh, that day Yahweh will punish above the armies of the sky, below the kings of the earth. And it's kind of like a, mm. a, a, a – as above, so below type philosophy. But it, 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 when I heard, heard Scott talking about that, it, I, I was thinking that sounds almost like uh, in the title of the uh, somewhat recent um, studio outtakes that are on the uh, Jimmy CD, uh, Both Sides of the Sky. Is Jimmy? Is there something like uh, that being able to see on both sides of 
this guy in Gurdjieff's philosophy, or is there something like that influencing Jimi Hendrix in this like sixty nine nineteen seventy time period? Uh, yes, Jimmy was involved in uh, working on himself, weaning himself off of hard drugs. Uh, and I don't know the effect, no, really nobody knows, because he died. So we don't know if he was able to attain, attain a certain development for something to live on after his death. We don't know that. That's his own personal journey. But I do know what he was involved in. Um, he passed on some of that to a few people, one of them who is still alive today. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. Uh, and also, let, just let me go back a little bit because you mentioned uh, Hendrix's outtakes and CDs and things like that. I basically concentrate on the Jimi Hendrix as far as musically. And this really uh, really doesn't sit well with a lot of Hendrixonians, I call them. Uh, I basically concentrate on Jimmy's first three albums. Mm -hmm. After that, uh, it's that's what we're hearing. We're hearing unfinished songs, outtakes, studio jams, and things like that. Uh, actually, Jimmy was going through a lot more than any other of the rockers that we mentioned earlier because he had more potential being a black rocker especially with white musicians. Back then, I mean, today that's a no-no, but back then, I'm surprised the guy didn't get lynched. You know, <laughs> he, he was basically very open about his lifestyle, and he was very dangerous to the powers that be because he was bringing races together. That is so important. I have to say that again. He was bringing different races of people together. And that's very dangerous idea. And then to infuse maybe, let's say he lived longer, to infuse these people with a certain consciousness, very dangerous. So um, he was getting back on track before he died. He reached out to his original producer, Chaz Chandler. He realized he was going nowhere and uh, he was in bad management. Government was on harassing him. Uh, and so he reached out and he said, look, could you help me? I want to get back in, you know, in the swing of things like when it was before. And Chaz finally, you know, he was against it for a while. Finally, he said, okay, I'll tell you what, bring me the masters. Let's talk about it. And then Jimmy died. So we at least know he was on his way to getting back on track, you know. But I find um – really revealing about uh, all these you know, partially finished songs, uh, ideas that there, there was something there, but it, it never really finalized. Uh, <clears throat> there, really, you can see where in 1969, uh, J Jimmy was uh, doing something changing 
that it shows up on Electric Ladyland, and you you can see in these uh, new studio CDs that have come out over the last 10, 12 years or so, that he must have been writing uh, all kinds of poetry, developing a, a lot more than people ever realized uh, how much he was evolving as a person uh spiritually you know, uh creatively and, and i think a lot of these uh, you know, like people how and angels uh might be one of the better examples that documents uh how much he insights he he offered to people to um Give a better, give them a better uh, outlook on life, uh, frame of mind, you know, whatever term you want to use. Yes, there's, there's of course gems here and there, but you you have to be very discerning when you listen to that stuff. When I do the meet and greets, and people come and tell me, "Oh, I'm into Hendrix, so how can I get more?" And I didn't know he was this deep, and uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know he blah blah blah. Especially when I do my lectures. And they say, how how can I get more into them? I'm like, get the first three albums and you'll be straight. <laughs> Everything else is icing on the cake. Get the first three albums because uh, that's when he counted. That's uh, that that music is still very effective today. When you hear it today, there's something there that doesn't sound like most of the other rock music you listen to. There's something there. There's a mysticism there that can't be put into words. That still makes this music quite viable you know especially like you mentioned the poetry there's poetry in his lyrics when you are like really put on headphones listen to his lyrics the stuff especially his ballads listen to the stuff he's he's writing about it's it's like pure poetry you know mm-hmm. that's what that's why he admired uh, bob dylan because bob dylan was the same way with his, with his lyrics Okay, uh, of the first three CDs, which one is your favorite? Uh, I don't, I don't do the favorite thingy. Uh, he did uh, all your experience was the first album. Then that same year, really, with Access Bold as Love, it was a whole different type of a vibe. Then you had the album you mentioned, Electric Ladyland, which was uh, had some jam. He liked he liked to get the studio and jam, so it had a lot of that on there. He had some of his old friends uh, come and join him on, on that album as well. Uh, people like uh, Brian Jones, uh, 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 Stephen Stills, I believe, is on it. I mean, Al Cooper, um, Jack Cassidy. You know, these are really big heavy hitters back then in the day. And so he had them join him in a jam at like atmosphere. There's a song you you were talking about Atlantis. There's a song that he makes reference to things like that in a song called 19. This is the title of the song. 1983, a merman I shall turn to be. I mean, it it takes you on a journey of the destruction of the planet and you know surviving going underwater to survive that. 
basically what the song about. I mean, it's the poetry in that is just amazing. The music matches the poetry. He goes into a jam there. I mean, it's, that's the album. That album was not by accident, Mark. Uh, matter of fact, you mentioned just before that album, he ran into a jazz, a famous jazz, progressive jazz musician whose name is Sun Ra. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. your listeners sure. may not be familiar with Sun Ra. Sun Ra um, was a jazz keyboard player, piano player, who's into the ancient Egyptian teachings and uh, spoke spoke highly, you know, about this and spoke about the actual teachings a lot, uh, did a concert at the site of the pyramids and everything. And he influenced a lot of jazz musicians, a lot of famous heavy hitters. I can go out and list from Miles Davis, Rashawn Kirk. I can just go down and list of the people this guy changed their direction musically when they met Sun Ra. Well, the same thing happened with Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Jimi, uh, all of a sudden, we have we have the first two albums, like I mentioned, Are You Experienced, Acts as Bold as Love, then something totally different, Electric Ladyland, even the title, Electric Ladyland, Female Energy which is what he was into, uh, matriarch, matriarchal female energy. And the whole album is oozing, just oozing with that. I think, uh, was it like Earth Blues has a lot of uh, similar image, the matriarchal imagery in, in the lyrics? But, yes, and you're talking about later... Um, more of mm-hmm. his later things that came out after he died, actually. Um, but yeah, uh, and it's politically as well, politically, you know, attentive as well. So but that was uh, later. I'm talking about while he was alive and what he really pushed uh, as new concepts. Uh, matter of fact, yeah. the stuff that uh, you, you were talking about, uh, Earth Blues and uh, that period, that he was coming out with, Cry of Love. Um, <clears throat> these were released after he died, the first rays of the new rising sun. These were songs he was working on when he died, that they said, okay, the guy's dead, let's master these and mix these as best we can and put it out there. And then I didn't know this until I started touring with the bass player, Jimmy's bass player, Billy Cox, uh, that uh, Jimmy was in England on the phone with Billy almost every day, like making changes, like, hey, man, we're going to change the, okay, instead of going to the bridge, I want to blah, blah, blah. Okay, we're going to change this part. and blah, blah. Those, those songs were not going to sound like the way they sounded when uh, when Jimmy got through. He was supposed to come back to America and work on those songs. So you're hearing basic uh, what I call demos that you do, you know, before you mm-hmm. actually do the album. That's what you're really hearing. I, I I enjoy them as much as you know the uh, first first three CDs, but but with Electric Ladyland, you, you really do hear something totally uh, different, and you know, like uh, you know, there's like almost all the uh, members of uh, Traffic were. Um, on one song or another, uh, you know, like they're mm-hmm. like one of the uh, top bands, uh, you know, what 1969 or uh, 
Um, Jack Cassidy from the Jefferson Airplane. And, and you, know, you see, see a lot of uh, bands at that time working together. Uh, Clapton did the While My Guitar Gently uh, Weeps with the Beatles. So it, 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 it just it seems like there were a lot of people just uh, wanting to collaborate and, and you know, J- Jimmy's part of it where he's j- just uh, helping to bring uh, people together instead of uh, keeping you know, the band separate from everyone else. Mm-hmm. And he may have start, started the trend or uh, just uh, gotten involved with, with doing the same thing, but uh, he he really maximized uh, his uh, friendships with so many other people. Stephen Space on one of the outtakes too, uh, what somewhere from uh, the People, Hells and Angels CD. Yes, Stephen Stills was was very uh, close to Jimmy. Uh, he's he's on a few things, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, it, that's something different that you mentioned. That's where the mysticism really started to kick in for Jimmy. And you're right, he attracted so many different people uh, who who was in his, in his orbit because they considered him a musical shaman. This is the way they really considered uh, Jimmy. That's why the, the title of my lectures is American Google. This was the guy... If there was going to be somebody to bring people together uh, like that, it would. This was the guy who who was capable of doing that uh, through his music. That's where he was going, and that was very important to him. When he looked out, uh, his bass player Billy Cox told me when he used to look out in the audience and see mostly white uh, people in the audience, it bothered him. He wanted more. Uh, people, different, like Asians, Blacks, Latino. He wanted different people, different age, maybe different age groups. So his music was changing in that direction to include everybody. And unfortunately, he died before he can realize, even get to really realize that, to make that happen. I always compare him with Bob Marley, who was a little bit more successful uh, in that. And uh, Bob Marley used reggae music but he just didn't use reggae, regular reggae. He used Rastafarian mystical reggae. If you've ever been to Jamaica and, uh, like I have, and went up in the hills to meet these Rastas, it's totally different from the people uh, in town. These people live uh, off the land, uh, you know, very communally. The music is quite different. The, the reggae music is quite different, and that's what Bob Marley tapped into. As a matter of fact, he got in trouble by the uh, by those rosters for doing that, for making it commercial like that. So uh, that's hmm. pretty much what Jimmy was doing. And the thing is, Bob Marley was Jamaican. Jimmy was American. He was a black American. So that's, uh, like I what I said, that's what made him quite dangerous. Okay, and speaking of his collaborators, um, 
he was already friends with uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, uh, but Paul's wife Linda uh, Eastman would also do the photography for part some of the photography for Electric Ladyland. So uh, there, there's another Beatles connection, and it, it, uh, it, it, it's just really interesting how many people he uh, Jimmy is collaborating with uh, over such such a short period of time. Indeed, matter of fact, uh, speaking of Linda Eastman, no, no uh, she and Jimmy dated. Uh, oh, he I didn't met know her that. At, at yeah at the scene. Oh, uh, you can yeah you can Google that. That's common knowledge. Uh, oh no, they dated, and uh, so there you have a connection with Jimmy with the Beatles again, and also the reason why we're sitting here having this conversation about Jimi Hendrix is because of one woman who believed in him and groomed him to, so she can bring people down to take him to the next level. And that woman was the girlfriend of Keith Richards of the Stones. Her name is Linda Keith. She was a model. And she met Jimmy and actually gave Jimmy one of Keith Richards' guitars, and she would dress Jimmy before the gig. And, and, you know, got him to sing more. She actually groomed him into the Jimi Hendrix we knew because she was bringing people down. She brought two people down, uh, two different people down before she brought Chas Chandler down to see Jimmy play live. It was Chas Chandler who saw the potential in Jimmy and took Jimmy to England. But Linda brought a few other people down, and they said, nah, we don't think there's nothing there. You know what I mean? But she groomed Jimmy and made him, you know, concentrate on him more because Jimmy was basically just a sideman playing with the different groups that played with a, quite a few soul bands. Uh, so he wasn't really front man. Yeah, he wasn't, I mean, he'd done it here and there, but it was Linda Keith who made him, oh, no, no, you're up front. It's the show's about you, blah, 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 blah. Just do your tricks with the guitar. You don't have to do them behind another singer no more. Oh, well, get out front and do your stuff. And that's why we we're talking about Hendrix to this day. It's because of that one woman. And she, uh, luckily, I saw this film, All Is By My Side, I think. Uh, <clears throat> and they do mention this. So there are some bios that mention this, and that film does spend some time on this. But usually this is left out of the equation when you talk about Hendrix. We, you know, um, and that's very, this woman's very important. Um, and also one other thing I'd like to say briefly, too, you would mention about the important collaborations. Are you familiar with Alice Coltrane? Uh, I've uh, heard her, her CD that she, she did with uh, Carlos Santana, but I, I'm not all that familiar with who, who she is. Okay, yeah, that's I was going to bring that up, um, but just, just a little bit. About her, she got into the Hindu teachings uh, after okay. her husband John Coltrane died, and she became a guru. She actually moved to California and started her own commune, 
uh, with followers. As a matter of fact, I believe the commune is still active today. She died uh, some years ago, but I believe the commune is still active. And she was considered a spiritual leader. Uh, she, she played harp. She played uh, organ, uh, mainly harp, and she sang, and boom. Uh, so just before she did that album you mentioned with Carlos Santana, who, by the way, when he collaborated with Alice Coltrane, she affected him so much, he changed his name from Carlos Santana to Devadip, which is a Hindu name. Uh, that's how much this woman affected him. Well, she spoke at my high school, Performing Arts. Performing Arts was known to have very famous people back then uh, come to the school when they were in New York and, and speak at the school. A lot of music schools do this, but uh, back then, a lot of these people were still alive. Uh, so they would stop by performing arts and, you know, either speak to an assembly or we did a special little small class with them with, you know, would say something to us. Alice came by and she spoke to us in assembly. And she said at that assembly, and this was before she did the Carlos Santana collaboration, she said that um, she reached out to Hendrix to do a collaboration but she kept getting the runaround from the management. So she called Miles Davis and she said, how do I, because Miles Davis and Jimmy were tight. So they were, uh, they were actually playing together sometimes and things like that. So she said, how do I get, how do I get him? So Miles gave her another number, but she still was getting the runaround. So she just, uh, she said, okay, forget it. I guess it's not going to happen. And she eventually reached out to Carlos Santana. She wanted to reach out to rock musicians, uh, specifically other than jazz musicians. Uh, she felt that was very important. Very gifted woman. Uh, just listening to her talk about music and spirituality, you're lifted to another level. Okay. And did, did since you were just talking about Miles Davis, did... Uh, Jimmy have any influence or you know, was he influenced by uh Bitches Brew? That's you know, just like one of those all time great albums. Uh well Bitches Brew is a seminal album that actually changed changed uh actually formalized the word fusion, uh, fusion jazz and fusion rock. Uh, but that was the album that really did it. And Jimi Hendrix was supposed to be on that album. Not only oh, was Jimi really? Hendrix, Sly Stone as well. Those three were hanging out together for a period of time. Uh, I got a month and a half, something like that. Now, I'm going to say that again. Miles Davis, Jimi Hendrix, and Sly Stone were hanging out together. That, I mean, just imagine the conversations of, of music other than the partying they did. But just imagine. Uh, you know, so anyway, yes, Jimmy was supposed to be on Bitches Brew. What happened is Miles Davis's wife, Betty Davis, who is also a singer as well, and she introduced Miles to Jimmy. She introduced that whole rock movement. Uh, Miles was wearing suits and ties, totally jazz player. And she introduced 
Miles to that whole rock thing that was happening back then. So Miles changed his whole, not only uh, fashion attire, but he changed his whole sound, even putting a wah-wah on the trumpet. Everything, everything changed uh, with Miles, and that's because of her introducing Jimi Hendrix to Miles. So Miles says this in his bio. This isn't just me saying this. He thought that uh, Betty Davis and, and Hendrix were having an affair, which they were. <laughs> I said it. I'm going to say it. But basically, um, so that's why he, at the last minute, he booted Jimmy off the sessions and got John McLaughlin to do the album. And it was Quincy Jones, the famous uh, jazz, uh, jazzman, Quincy Jones, who was responsible for bringing Hendrix and Miles together again after that because they wasn't even, you know, there was no friendship pretty much after that. And um, it was, Quincy said, you guys are too important to what you're doing in music for this childishness and uh, got them at least back together. That's why um, you see Miles at Jimmy's funeral. I did not know that. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so when, okay, so Bitches Brew and Electric Ladyland, what they're about contemporary. Um, then we get, go on to Jimmy headlining Woodstock, and the the announcer didn't even know the name of the band. Uh, he, he got the uh, wrong name of the band out over the PA system. Um, yeah. Um, to, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it was no. It was no longer uh, the Jimi Hendrix experiences. Uh, what G- Gypsy Sun and Rainbows? Yeah, that was the name of his. What I, I call a jam band. He was. He wanted to explore a new, totally a new sound. Uh, he rented a house two weeks before that concert in Woodstock area, in actually in Boys Boyzo area and uh he was exploring he was jamming every day and exploring the new sound that he wanted to get into he had an african influenced uh percussionist and he had a latin guy spanish guy percussionist so that was that right there he had two percussion players playing with him and uh both of these guys are my best friends today and he also had another guitar player larry lee uh, playing that an old army buddy, so um, it was yeah five piece band and he was exploring. But to tell you the truth, Mark, Jimmy didn't know the name of the band. I mean these guys were basically <laughs> yeah they were getting high and jamming and then okay let's go do the concert, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I, to be honest, um, it you know it's a lot of the stuff was loose. It was a very loose performance. Uh, the thing that really stands out from that performance is his version of the Star Spangled Banner, which he had done mm-hmm. uh, many times previously and after. But it was just something about that performance because of of the times then, that uh, that whole Vietnam time that was happening there. 
so that, you know, turned out to be an iconic protest, a uh, real good statement on what the country was going through at that time. Just that one song, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, you're getting everything. It's, it's like an opera. You're getting, you're getting everything in that one song, the, the screams, the, the pain of war, uh, the bombs, all of that. Oh, not uh, long after Woodstock, he, Jimmy was on uh, the Dick Cavett show and uh, it was called in what, something like an unorthodox performance and uh, J- Jimmy took exception to the use of that adjective. Um, yeah, it, it was just... It, it was just uh, presented in a different. A song was presented in a different way. One bad or good or not being judgmental about it. It's just this is how he wanted to do the song. It's a you know, classic moment in rock history. Oh, yeah, yeah, very iconic. Oh, very iconic for the time. So, it, um, and, and you also, uh, when, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy did, uh, his, his Woodstock performance, he, he's wearing that, uh, white, uh, jacket. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the making of that coat? I, I remember you talking about that when we did the Three Beards show. Uh, yes, I, actually, the the woman who made that jacket. Uh, there's actually two of them. Uh, but uh, Colette, his girlfriend, uh, she, she's also a friend of mine today, and basically. Her and her partner, Stella, they used to have a store, a fashion store, that was a few blocks from the Fillmore. And all of this, I mean, the who's who of the music world used to hang out there. Uh, as As a member of the fan club, I was there like maybe four times. And I was, back then, I'm 15, 16. We used to love going to the store because... It was a mainly women's fashion store. Uh, matter of fact, her later clients included Cher, and uh, she had these, you know, high fashion clients. But uh, the the women would come to the store, and they would see something they like. They would take off their clothes right there, and she had like this little, you know, Chinese screen or something. But they would like mm-hmm. take off their shirt or take off their you know, the pants or whatever, right there and try the thing on. So, you know, us little kids, <laughs> that was like heaven to us. So we used to love going there to hang out, uh, basically, just to see that. I mean, it, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow. So when I hooked up with Colette again, I interviewed her on my radio show, and we hooked up again after that. Uh, yeah, uh, we we had a bit, good belly laugh about that because – uh, that that's what what it was about. But they made that jacket for uh, for Jimmy. They made quite a few Jimmy's clothes. They made uh, a few of his pants and things. 
but it also made clothes for Miles Davis, Johnny Winter. Uh, the list goes on. They, uh, a lot of people used to come by that store. It was a very uh, matter of fact. The store didn't have no name. Yeah, that's it. Just <laughs> it was just a store in the village, and you know you knew it was a store because when you walked by, you see things in the window, and you just went in. But there was no sign. There was no nothing over the no title or nothing, and it was a hangout. Uh, very very um, very good place. And Stella, her partner Stella is actually the wife of uh, Stella Douglas. She's the wife of Jimmy's later producer, Alan Douglas who uh, I was also, I also befriended just before he died um, from being on my radio show. Okay. And speaking of uh, Colette also making uh, clothing for Johnny Winter, uh, Johnny was a guest on your show. What did you learn uh, from Johnny about Jimmy, they uh, did the song "Things I Used to Do." Uh, I, I don't know if that's their only uh, recording, but they uh, but they did play together uh, from from time to time. You know, both are Woodstock alumni. Uh, it, it, what what were Johnny's recollections? Uh, actually, I got to speak to Johnny when he was uh, not the Johnny Winter we know. I used, I used to, I saw Johnny maybe five or six times, and he was always one of my favorite. Uh, but by the time I interviewed him, he was uh, a, a shadow of who he used to be. He used to come out on stage at BB King to sit in a chair, and it was sad to watch uh, because he was, you know, he was on his way out. So when I got to interview him. He didn't know who I was and, you know, just another guy wants to speak to him. So he would give me one-word answers. I'd be like, yeah, so Johnny, blah, 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 blah. Yes. Yeah. No. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is getting nowhere. So I just out of nowhere, I, I forgot how, how I even brought it up. I said, you know, Johnny, I, I have a lot of respect for you, man, because I go way back with you. Uh, I was at those jams that you did with Jimmy at Steve Paul's, the guy lit up. He was like, what? Yeah. So then he started to open up more. Uh, then we started to talk about those jam sessions with, in which Jimmy played bass on most of that. Uh, Jimmy, when Jimmy jammed with these different people, you mentioned Stephen Stills and just so many, B.B. King and things like that. Uh, well, B.B. King, he did play guitar. But uh, he really liked to play bass. He really got on the bass. He'd grab somebody's bass and uh, and play the bass. He didn't like to play guitar when he jammed a lot. Uh, so with Johnny, it was jamming. But there were a few times I saw him uh, jamming at, at the scene there, and they were face-to-face. Like, that's what uh, really made Johnny light up when I mentioned that, how they were, like, in each other's face. Oh, yeah, you did that? Okay, well, listen to this. All right, I got this. And that's what made those jams really fly because they both were going at each other in a friendly, competitive way. You know what I mean? It, it was it was something to be there to see that. And in my opinion, Johnny always bested Hendrix. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Uh, Johnny was on on fire back then. Well, it, 
And, and when was that? Was was that before Woodstock or right afterwards? Uh, man, that's yeah. I would have to look at my notes for that. Uh, I, I couldn't really tell you specifically. I was at the scene. The scene was a club uh, on Forty uh, Sixth Street in Manhattan. Uh, everybody get was there. Uh, matter of fact, that was Jimmy's first. Um, gig in New York when he first came to New York. Uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience with, with Nolan and Mitch uh, was a gig that they did there, but everybody was there. B.B. King, the gigs there, uh, even Sammy Davis Jr., just so many people. Uh, so it became a, a jam spot, after hours jam spot. It became very famous, and that's why a lot of people went. So uh, I was there quite often. Uh it was a little hole in the wall. You had, it, it's like the, we used to call it the belly of the beast. You know, you just go down these stairs, it's like you're in, in, the, in hell almost. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, it was small and funky, and everybody was everybody was there who, you know, anybody you can imagine. Joan, I remember seeing Joan Baez there. Uh, so just so many famous people were there, you know. Well, it, 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 you know, you were just talking about. Uh, yeah, you know, the venue, the scene. Uh, what about the uh, Fillmore? Uh, there have been, you know, there's the band of gypsies at the Fillmore, and then the uh, r- recent r- release of uh, what the first first uh, uh, show of that New Year's Eve uh, concert. Um, and you do uh, recreations of the uh, uh, Fillmore concerts. Uh, what was that venue uh, like? Is, it, is that still around? You know, uh, what was the importance of uh, those concerts for Jimmy's career? Oh, it was uh, very important in his career. It's... Uh... Uh, Billy Graham, who ran the Fillmore, uh, really admired Jimmy, and uh, just like he admired a lot of the other acts who were there, Santana, The Grateful Dead, he really, you know, stood up for these acts. Uh, we owe we owe Billy Graham a lot. Uh, no, the the place isn't there now. I think it's a bank there on the corner. But uh, yeah, the I re- I remember uh, quite a few of the concerts there. Matter of fact, uh, before I really got into Hendrix. Uh, I joined the Jimmy's fan club in 1968, just after the release, a few weeks after the release of the Electric Ladyland album. And uh, basically, that's when I joined. But in 1968, a few months before that November, I saw, I I was there to see actually Sly. And Sly Stone yep. opened for Hendrix. Hmm. And uh, basically, uh, I was there. Uh, Jimmy had a bad night because Sly burnt the place down. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it, Mark. Uh, yeah, he he played for his life at that at that concert. And uh, by the time Jimmy came on, people a lot of people were not paying attention to him. He had equipment problems. Uh, some people were like actually walking out and every yeah, I, I was there. Uh, so some people will talk about, oh, yeah, Jimmy, a slide open for Jimmy. Oh, Jimmy. Uh, but they're not being objective, you know what I mean, objective and impartial. 
you really get to, uh, first of all, you have to be that way with Hendrix because um, of what, what was happening to him. Uh, like I said earlier, behind the scenes with his management, with the government and things like that. So you have to be very impartial when you talk about Hendrix. A lot of people are not. They're like, oh, yeah, Jimi Hendrix, yeah, he was he was God and blah, 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 blah. And like, uh, you had mentioned the Fillmore, Band of Gypsies, which we recreate. Uh, that album, the Band of Gypsies album, is, most of it is spliced together. That's how bad Jimmy was at that and when I say bad, I don't mean in a good way. That's how unrehearsed and loose the band was at that concert that they had to splice a lot of that album together. Matter of fact, the producer, Eddie Kramer, should win an award for that splice job. Um, now, there are some songs that were left alone, like the famous Machine Gun, uh, uh-huh. which was uh, stands right up there with uh, Star Spangled Banner. That, that's, that's yikes. Uh, when you hear that, that tells about, you, you want to find out about the war years and all of that, listen to that song with headphones. Uh, you'll get an idea. But, yeah, like I said, that album spliced together. And you can actually hear some of the bad splice jobs in, in a few of the songs, like Message of Love. You can hear it's not, uh, they miss a splice right there. So if you really know the engineering work on that, you'll know it's a splice job. Okay. It, with uh, all of the other you know, studio uh, outtakes that you know we've mentioned, and uh, <clears throat> other CDs that have come out. Um, Like the uh, Winterland Ballroom uh, c- CD, uh, it, it seems like Eddie Kramer has been there for you know, working with Jimmy's music for o- over fifty years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does what was their relationship uh, like? Um, it, it it just seems like he's basically made a career out of um, producing Jimmy's uh, music and a, a, engineering his music. What, um, do you have any? Can you bring some insights into how Eddie worked? Uh, well, deservingly so. He 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 deserves whatever he made a career out of because he was important to getting that Jimi Hendrix sound. Uh, he a lot of ideas that Jimmy wanted, otherworldly ideas, especially experimental uh, spaceship sounds and just you know mystical things and and other dimensional sounds with the guitar. Eddie was able to oh okay well, I'll tell you what let's yeah, let's let's put it through here and let's try this. And so they got along fantastically, uh, really. And it was because of Eddie that a lot of those sounds that that we hear that Jimmy was able to to do on the, on those records. That's what makes those records. Uh, he was very important to helping Jimmy. Uh, he worked very well with Chaz Chandler. I interviewed Chaz as well, and uh, Chaz loved him. So uh, yeah, that 
that that was a team back then. Um, like I said, especially for the first three albums, um, it, it was a team that, that 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 shot Jimmy to the top. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what about the band of gypsies with B- Billy and Buddy? Uh, what were what did they bring to this n- newly formed trio that was, you know, may not have been there so much with Noel and Mitch? Uh, a more earthly sound, which Jimmy wanted to explore. Like, Jimmy was always exploring, uh, so he wanted a more going another direction, and plus, also, he was reaching out to, like I said earlier, more races. I, you know, I keep coming back to that. It, it's very important because, uh, especially in today's political climate, you know what I mean? Things are, like, separated straight down the middle now. I mean, it's gotten real stupid now. But, I yeah. mean, this uh, this is what Jimmy wanted to do. So he had the first, the Band of Gypsies is the first black rock band. So uh, he got his buddies together to put that together. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Uh, so he realized that and moved on to another sound, uh, which is what he was constantly doing. He was constantly evolving and constantly changing. The thing with Buddy Miles is Buddy Miles was very important to Hendrix because, first of all, as a drummer, Buddy Miles is uh, playing drums with uh, with Jimmy playing guitar on the demos to the first three albums. That's All You Experience, uh, Acts of Bold is Love, and most of the tracks on Electric Ladyland. Before you did an album, and even today they do that when you sign with a major label. I was with Columbia, and I had to do this. Uh, you do demos before you do the, the actual song. And if they approve the demo, then you go ahead and record the song. So that's what they were basically doing with a lot of the songs, like Purple Haze and stuff like that. When you hear the demos, that's not Mitch Mitchell playing. That's Buddy Miles playing drums. And Jimmy would play guitar, and then Jimmy would later overdub the bass for those demos. So Buddy Miles and Jimmy from way back, they were, you know, they were a solid team. And matter of fact, when you go to YouTube, you can hear a couple of those songs, a couple of those demos. Like Little Miss Lover, I think that's still on YouTube. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's they tried something, and it worked for, for a minute, and, you know, okay, that's the end of that, <laughs> and they moved on, you know. Okay. It, it, it was this you know, brief ex, uh, experiment, still part of that uh, Gurdjieff's philosophy starting to work its way into Jimmy's life. You just mentioned that uh, the Band of Gypsies was kind of a, a, a foray into another area of exploring and branching out. You know, that's actually a great question, Mark, what you're asking. And I would say, um, if, if it is, it's, I don't know, 
the uh, the relevancy of of that. Uh, he met Timothy Leary in '68, uh, and he actually did an album with with Timothy Timothy Leary. Steven Stills brought him into a session with Jimmy's playing bass on Timothy's album, and uh, it is said that Jimmy actually co-produced the album, but it's not getting credit. But he is playing bass, and that's how he got to be real tight. And then we come to May, just before Jimmy died in September in 1970, he's at the Village Gate, which is a jazz club, with Tim- jamming with Timothy Leary. Uh, so uh, th- he was, I would say, by the time the band of Gypsies, he was getting more earthly. He was really starting to think about more the spiritual things that he wasn't taking seriously in 68. Now he was starting to really, hmm, and he was starting to apply the work more in his life, more so that just before that May uh, Village Gate date at Timothy Lyria that I mentioned, Timothy introduced him to a black woman from the Gurgi Foundation who was able to get Jimmy in, involved with the Harlem Fourth Way group up in Harlem. Uh, so he was really not only getting into the fourth way teachings, but now he was getting into the actual ancient Egyptian teachings. Um, and not just the ancient Egyptian teachings, the ancient Egyptian teachings from the indigenous Africans who are still on the continent holding on to this knowledge. Now, I just have to just do a little brief and just bear with me here because I'm going to try to okay. call in. There's a brief explanation here. When people come up and ask me, uh, especially at the, when I do the lectures, well, what is this? What do you mean ancient Egyptians? What, what is this like? What are you talking about? I always refer to the movie or the TV show Kung Fu. Do you remember that with David Carradine? Right. I, 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 I remember uh, seeing a few episodes. Okay. The episodes consisted of David uh, roaming the world, but he would always have flashbacks of when he was in the Shaolin Monastery being instructed. That is what it was like in ancient Egypt. The culture in its golden years was ruled by the elite, the temple elite that most people never saw. And uh, I'm not the only one saying this, when you read uh, Swallow de Lubix, Renee Swallow de Lubix's books, especially from his wife who makes it more palatable to the layman, since uh, uh, Renee was more uh, very technical and, and things like that. So his wife, uh, Isha Swallow de Lubix, she made it more so we can, she put it in novel form. She put the teachings in a novel form so we can, oh, wow, you know, we can really get into it like a story. And basically, he documents that. So when you have uh, Stephen Mailer and people like that, they talk about this guy, how important his work was. That's what his work does, documents the temple elite and how it uh, guided ancient Egypt. And it's not just in Egypt. We can go to ancient India, ancient China, uh, South America. This were all, all of those great wonders that we see were guided by a temple elite. So when we today, in today's American society, think about temple elite, we think about, oh, the evil priest and who took advantage of the masses. That's how we think about mm-hmm. it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, back, back then, no, 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 no. They wouldn't have been able to accomplish what they did back then 
especially in Egypt, which is unequal today. We today can't build a great pyramid. There have been top engineers who went over there and said, well, I can't do that. How do they do that? Why, why would they do that, number one? It's certainly not a tomb, but why would they do something like that? We can't do that. So there had to be something uh, that was guiding that culture, and that's what it is. Those people are still there is my point. They went underground, but when you watch the old footage, especially of the T- King Tut digs, you see mm-hmm. these indigenous Africans there. You know what I mean? They were doing the menial work, basically. Gurdjieff took a trip to Egypt. He traveled all over. He went to, uh, you know, all of these famous uh, ancient sites all over the planet. But when he went to Egypt, he supposedly had a map of pre-sand Egypt. Well, when Gurdjieff was over there, first of all, he spent more time there than any other place uh, he he was at, something like seven years, I I believe, something like that. And how did he work? Uh, How did he, you know, get along and feed himself? He became a guide and hung, you know, did the digs and things like that. That's menial work that you can only, you know, you can be in contact when you do work like that. You're in contact with the indigenous Africans back then. So it's no wonder that Gurdjieff came upon the fourth way because that's how those people uh, were. They went underground. They blended in, uh, especially when the Arab uh, took over Egypt. Uh, Then the British came after that, and then the French, and it got real crazy. So these people went underground. They went further south. A lot of them went further south, uh, back into Nubia and stuff like that. But they went underground, not out in the open like they were. They're still there. They still come over here to America sometimes for the annual celebration at Prospect Park for the Star Series. So they're still active, but they're underground. And that's who Hendrix, I say that to say, that's who Hendrix hooked up with when he went to Harlem. Uh, so he actually, mm. two singers who sang background, the albums you mentioned, have two singers called the Aleens on those records, on a lot of those records you were, we were talking about. These were background singers, and they were twin brothers, uh, Arthur and Alan. And uh, Arthur and, uh, yeah, Arthur and Alan, I mean. And basically, they met Jimmy. They came upon Jimmy. Jimmy turned them on to the teachings. These guys changed their name to indigenous ancient Egyptian names, Tahaka Aline and Tundara Aline, because of Jimi Hendrix. Okay, I'm friends with, uh, well, one of them died some years back, but I'm friends with one of them. I'm friends with Tahaka. Uh, so basically, Jimmy was, he was becoming deep. Uh, before he died. That's why I emphasize this. We know the direction he was going. So I had to say all of that to tie that into his spirituality. It is the the backup singers, um, is that the ones that had the name the uh, Ghetto Fighters? Yes. Okay. Austin Albert uh, were there. I call it government name, but yes, that's the thing, guys. Okay, I uh, saw that in one of the uh, on the liner notes, and um, I don't know if I could. Well, don't want to go through all <laughs> like fifteen CDs. 
in a semicircle all around me. I don't know if I could uh, uh, go through all the liner notes and f- find it, but I, I thought I read that was th- their title as part part of the band as you know the, uh, the backup singers and it it, uh, it said that J- Jimmy had known them for so- some time. So okay, that's you know what you're saying put puts all that into you know with the uh uh temple elites that you were talking about it, you know that sounds like uh right out of the, the shows where normandy ellis was a guest with uh uh barbara a couple times and me once where you know she's talking about the high literacy rate and all the work that the scribes were doing and uh, the, the you know uh, colorful decorations on all all the temple temples, uh, uh, you know, sp- spoken with Chris Dunn, uh, you know, from Ancient Aliens, and he uh, demonstrated the high artistic skill that. You really can't even be uh, done today with uh, lasers. I, I mean, th- you know, this was just all precise uh, engineering, and it, it seems like it, you know that's what you know, G- Jimmy was getting in into, and, and you know, learning. Uh, from you know these people who you know, who had their own you know, little enclave of uh, people te- teaching you know, the old ways. Uh, it, it 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 seems like his music reflects all of that of uh, the ancient Egyptian cultures. Oh, most definitely. Matter of fact, you mentioned uh, Christopher Dunn, who's, who's one of my heroes, who just documents, like you said, the preciseness. Uh, so it leaves mm-hmm. no question. Uh, this guy mm-hmm. knows his stuff, and he goes there. He's a, he's objective about it. He's impartial. Uh, he's an engineer too. Yes, and that's matter of fact. If you mention ancient aliens around him, I think he would. He's <laughs> crazy about that, but uh, it's. If going by with him, what Scott lays out, Scott's an engineer, Scott Creighton. So, I mean, mm-hmm. these guys lay it out. Just imagine what the music was like. Okay? I mean, because we know that uh, the sacred science and the architecture and architecture is like what they call frozen music. Just imagine. We know that Saqqara, the ancient uh, site of Saqqara, was a healing center that dealt mainly with resonance and sound. Stephen Mailer documents this, and so does uh, Asher Crazy. There's so many people who document this. We know that that's, that place, that's what it was. It wasn't a, a, a burial site only. So, I mean, um, just imagine what sound was used for, and this is what Sun Ra turned Jimmy on to. Uh, Sun Ra said, matter of fact, if you look at the bios of Jimmy or you read certain quotes, you see people say, well, Jimmy was getting away from the antics on the stage and playing blah, 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 blah. 
And, uh, yeah, for a while, until he met Sun Ra again, just before he died, and Sun Ra said, what are you, crazy? What better way to manipulate sound than with your body and with those tricks that you're doing? So when we see Jimi Hendrix just before we die, he died, we see him getting back into the, uh, you know, the, the stage squats, the, on his knees. And so we see him getting back into that. That's because he spoke to Sun Ra about that. And, uh, the, you know, the potential of sound. Matter of fact, Jimmy would sometimes start a concert and he'd introduce his audience and say, oh, we hear blah, 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 and we can all get into love, peace, and sound. He was into sound, man. And he was into residence. Uh, so basically that it was all coming together for him, and then the guy died. So, so that's, that's the story of Jimi Hendrix right there. We're, we're seeing a guy from who came out the box swinging, really, you know, just um, swinging hard and really on top. And then we see him heading downhill, and then he finds his, he finds his groove back, and he's starting to get it, and he dies. That's, that's four years. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned um, uh, the star Sirius. What was the uh, – uh, well, you can follow Orion's belt uh, to Sirius. Uh, what did – what role did Sirius – play in ancient Egypt or to Jimmy's friends uh, have some kind of interpretation of the the star's importance? Uh, When you say his friends, uh, which friends specifically are you speaking about? (laughs) Uh, uh, Like the... uh, uh, ones who might have been, uh, yeah, you know, uh, giving, you know, educating him about uh, ancient Egypt while he was in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, I wouldn't call them so much friends. It, it was it was a group that he was a part of for a while. Um, but you're actually asking the wrong guy. I mean, I'm. Uh, that's not my field of expertise, oh, especially okay. when you have so many great people like Robert Boval, uh, uh, Graham Hancock, who can really break it down for you, Stephen Mailer. These cats can really break down how important that was to the ancient Egyptians. I can only give you a, a, a background of it. I'm more uh, my field of extra work and applying to work the work in pop music. I emphasize pop. Because uh, back in Jimmy's day, uh, you had other groups who were involved, some of them with Gurdjieff, but involved in spiritual teachings. You had members of the Grateful Dead. You had members of the band Yes. Uh, I can go on, Brian, uh, Brian Eno. I can go on and on of people who were involved in actually working on themselves spiritually but were pop stars and pop musicians. Look at the Beatles. Uh, so that's me. Um, I don't want to 
go into a club and play my music or do my show in front of like six people who are working on themselves. <laughs> my, I'm trying to reach the masses through popular music and the work. And when I can apply, bring in the teachings with that, I do that, especially with my lectures. I can do that. Uh, but to get specific on things like that, you know, we would have to, you know, I would have to go to my notes. You would have to go to the books and, you know, we, uh, that's not really my, um, my, you know, okay. for me to spend time on that, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, yeah, the uh, Grateful Dead played at the pyramids. Sure. And, yeah. Yeah. They must have been working on something uh, similar. Um, let's see what. Oh, uh, yeah. Th- there's the somewhat uh, recent release of. Jimmy live at Maui. Um, <laughs> that, there's uh, he he did two two shows. Ooh, uh, I just happened to look at the back of the box uh, on July 30th, 1970. So it's almost 51 years to the. Uh, day, but um, mm-hmm. it, yeah, that's a um, new uh, uh, release from you know of, you know all these uh, uh, archival uh, concerts that have been uh, rediscovered and you know c- cleaned up and released and. Um, what what was the importance of that concert in the Haleakala Crater? Uh, it was very important. Now, I'm I'm so glad, Mark, you actually mentioned that um, because <clears throat> it was important and not for Jimmy's performances. He hated that performance. What was important uh, was called the Rainbow Bridge. Uh, Vibratory Sound and Color Festival. That was the title of the festival. And it was put together by a gentleman named Chuck Wayne, who is also considered a wacko like Timothy Leary, unfortunately. But I don't know Chuck that well. I did interview him briefly, uh, but I don't know. I didn't know him that well. But what was important with this Rainbow Bridge concert was that Chuck brought together spiritual leaders from all over the planet to gather at this crater in Hawaii. Uh, It was important for him to go all over the world, or at least reach out to people all over the world and bring people together. He had Sufis there. He had people from China, from Japan, uh, people from Russia, just anywhere, Africa, anywhere you can think of, gathered in one place. Uh, So now... Uh, basically, unfortunately, he's not even known for that. He's known for putting together a movie that was leaves a lot to be desired when you watch it, and uh, Jimi Hendrix's performance there. But you can get a taste of what I just said, because before Chuck, uh, before Jimmy comes on, Chuck comes on stage and introduces him, and Chuck's words are, and I'm paraphrasing, 
so let's everybody come together and let Jimmy's music so Jimmy can lead us across this rainbow bridge. That's why Jimmy was at that concert. They considered themselves going into a whole new age of having that concert in that crater because of that concert and because of a certain alignment that was supposed to take place, which I don't know if it took place or not. Uh, it was supposed to take place according to Chuck. We talked about it. A certain alignment. And Jimi Hendrix was chosen specifically to lead those people into that new age. And that's his announcement to bring Jimmy on stage. I don't know the exact words. You can, look, you can Google the exact words, but that's uh, the important words right there. So right there with what I just said of Jimmy being chosen for that and then uh, this guy Chuck bringing together spiritual leaders from all over the planet. If I'm in New York City, that's why I love New York City, because when you go to Manhattan, it's like you can go to spiritual centers like from everywhere. I used to live in Little India. I used to live in a village. I mean, just these are, uh, these are places that are very mystical and magical to me. Uh, so that's why I love New York, and pretty much that's what Chuck did back in 1970. It was very important. Now, the movie, like I said, when you watch the actual Rainbow Bridge film, you're like, yikes. Um, <laughs> uh, did, did these guys have too much uh, partaking too much, you know, whatever? I don't know. Yeah, uh, one time thrown in that movie. Excuse me. I, I, I was seeing it one time is enough. Yeah, it's, uh, he was Jimmy was chosen for that at the last minute just to get uh, sales. He was thrown in that movie by his manager, basically for for sales at the last minute. But um, like I said, the importance of that is uh, what Chuck did in the, in the actual concert which Jimmy hated. Every time it was brought up, he hated. He didn't want to talk about that concert. Hmm. Uh, I like the CD. and, and well, it, it wasn't too long after... Is it, is it, what, was the Atlanta Pop Festival right a, after... Maui or earlier, a little bit earlier. Hmm, now that's something I would have to uh, research. I'm not too sure. Yeah. I know it's around that same that same period. Uh, yeah, I'm, but yeah, I'm not really. I'm trying to find uh, find the date on looking through the liner notes again. <laughs> but what? Um, yeah, that, that that concert seems to ha- have been a- another one of those very important concerts. Um, what what was the significance of the Atlanta Pop uh, concert? Uh, uh, that's again, we're speaking about another gig that Jimmy didn't think too highly of. Uh, so I, I don't know, maybe the, you're speaking about the intentions of the actual promoters to put the concert on. Yeah. I know it was among the last of the great, 
uh, you know, festivals like a Woodstock or uh, I think Atlanta Pop was among the, the last of the American uh, big festivals. After that, the, the powers that be said, okay, you're shutting this whole movement down. We're shutting it down. We're not, we're not limiting it. We're shutting it down. And they did for a very long time until uh, the MTV years when you had the, uh, the other concerts come around. But it was getting too powerful. People were becoming empowered through concerts like this. It, it was becoming very dangerous to the government. I actually know the photographer, uh, Art Riley, who actually photographed Jimmy at their concert. He does lectures sometimes with me. Uh, and I know we, we speak sometimes about that. Uh, so I, I do believe it was one of the last of the great ones. Okay, so, since uh, you, you just uh, mentioned uh, you, you know, your lectures, um, you know, might as well also talk about your new divinity studio and some of the uh, projects you have. Uh, going on through there. Uh, let's get, make sure we leave a little bit of time uh, to plug that. So, yeah, you're uh, doing some teaching there. Uh, you know, recording with uh, students. You know, what what do you have going on? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a center where I. Uh... I have students. I also produce clients, and um, so my services are listed on the site. And, and as well as I develop talent, I groom talent, and I present them to my top contacts. Uh, so that information is there as well, and it also has information about the various projects that I personally do. Uh, of course, the Kiss the Sky, which is my biggest one, with uh, uh, that's me doing Hendrix. But I also do an Al Green show. Um, and I also have an original project, which is a direct continuation of Hendrix's Electric Ladyland concept, meaning I work uh, with my original project. I have all female backup bands. I work with female energy, that energy, and it's the foundation of my sound. That's pretty much the direction Jimmy was going with his, uh, with his music. I know one of the um, bass players, Cleo, who were, Jimmy was grooming, one of Jimmy's protégés. Um, and, yeah, he was going in that direction. Prince actually was able to do it before he died, work with female musicians. But this is a little mm -hmm. different where I uh, basically take their energy, their aggressiveness, and that empowered energy. And that's, the found, that's what I build my sound out of. I don't just have them come and play what I want. I basically take that and build my sound off of that. I got that idea from Miles Davis. Miles Davis, uh, when you're speaking about the Bitches Brew era, he did that. He brought together young musicians and really great musicians, but a lot of them are young, and he took that energy and created a new sound. He built off of that. That's where I got the idea from. So uh, everything's on there. And you mentioned uh, radio hosts. I haven't done the radio show in four years. Uh, but it was a very popular FM radio show, WFDU 89.1 FM out of Teaneck. Uh, the list of the people I was blessed 
and I emphasize the word blessed to interview is listed uh, on that particular uh, page of my site. And it's when you go down that list, a lot of those people you see are my friends. And it's because once I reached out to them to interview them and they found out what I did, especially with Hendrix, uh, they, yeah, they were very, uh, we were, it was a mutual respect. And um, so sometimes I would reach out to interview them and the managers, their managers would say, okay, well, we'll give you 15 minutes. We'll give you 20 minutes. I get on the phone with them. I'm speaking with them for an hour. And sometimes they would tell me stuff. They would, uh, the manager would say, okay, you can't mention blah, blah, blah. And don't make sure you don't mention blah, blah. I said, okay. I just want to speak to them about the music. I don't want to about that other stuff. They, read, they tell me that in the interview because, like I said, there was a mutual respect, and they, you know, we, we, they felt that they can go there with, with me. So I got a lot of information, especially about the Hendrix story, uh, the people that I interviewed with the Hendrix. I call it the Hendrix saga. I got things that you would, between that and my lectures, you're not going to see in any bio, any documentary, uh, you, you're just not going to find it. And I have that. Uh, I still have a lot of those interviews. I have most of the interviews from there. So all that information is on my website. My website is New Divinity, S as in shine, as in from, C as in consciousness. That's newdivinitysfc.com. And, uh, yeah, you get all the information you need there. It, it, is your studio like set up like the Electric Ladyland or some kind of similar philosophy, or is it you know just more designed to uh, your taste or the you know, modern modern way of doing uh, recordings? Yes, modern way of recording where I can do sound and film. That's what uh, SFC, uh, New Divinity mm-hmm. Sound and Film, uh, that's what I do. Sound and film creation because the consciousness has to come in there. Um, so basically, yes, it's mom and pop. Uh, I have two locations. I have the, the location that's on, uh, most of it is on my website. Then I also have my other location. If you look at my trailer for my lectures, you'll see me in my other studio that's located in New Jersey. That's my, really my partner's facility. So between those two places, I'm able to do, to, uh, to accomplish what I'm able to do with the, with the sound and film. I'm totally into film. I'm doing a film now that's uh, based on Jimmy. Uh, it's called Voodoo Child, A Man and His Guitar. I'm actually in production on that. I'm shooting uh, on that and everything I, uh, on that now. That used to be a play. I used to do an off-Broadway play of that in the 80s and the 90s, and now I'm doing a film. I have a sponsor for that. So that's happening. Uh, but the lectures, I, you mentioned the lectures that I do. They're very important because I bring out um, a lot of points that people forget about Jimmy or actually don't know. Uh, you, One example is, when you listen to the people talk about Hendrix, the interviews, or you read the bios, they say that Jimmy didn't connect with the black community. 
and that's a total no-no. <laughs> Basically, I document uh, in my lectures how, uh, just to give an example, when the first three albums we were just talking about were charting high on Billboard's charts, those same albums and albums after that, when he died, were charting simultaneously high on the Black Soul charts. That means uh, Are You Experienced, Axis Boulder's Love, Electric Lady Land, Band of Gypsies, the albums you mentioned, uh, Cry Love and stuff like that. When those albums were charting like number seven, eight on Billboard's rock charts, pop charts, simultaneously they were charting seven, eight, eleven on the soul charts. They couldn't do that if black people were not aware or soul people were not aware of Jimi Hendrix. So they knew who Jimi Hendrix was. I also have articles of Jimi in Ebony Magazine, uh, the black magazines of the time. So that's mm -hmm. a myth that I destroy right away. Uh, and that's why he wanted to really reach more out to more people. So uh, that's, yeah, my... Um, my lectures include that. I also document Jimmy's playing on the first hip-hop album. Hip-hop is very big today. Uh, not album, song, sorry. Hip-hop is very big. It, it runs the industry today. Jimi Hendrix is on the, Jimi Hendrix and Buddy Miles is on the first hip-hop record. Uh, you can hear it on YouTube, uh, basically. And not only is he on that record with Buddy Miles, one of the uh, seminal uh, spoken word groups, The Last Poets, one of their members is actually rapping on that song. That's 1969. What song is that? Called Doriella Du Fontaine. And it's, a, it's about a prostitute. Uh, but I interviewed Alan Douglas on my radio show who produced that song. Uh, Alan is responsible for introducing Miles to Hendrix and uh, a lot of jazz people to Hendrix. And we, talk, we spoke about that session and how it came about and, and everything. That's the first hip-hop record. When you listen to it, it has all of the elements of even today's hip-hop. The, the funky drum beat, the rapping, Jimmy's playing guitar, Buddy Miles is playing drums, and then when they laid that down, they overdubbed Jimmy on bass and Buddy Miles on organ. Uh, but if you listen to that song, like, once again, it's called Doriella Du Fontaine. That's hip-hop. And it's hip-hop by one of the last poets, which makes it even more deep. Uh, so Jimmy was there from the beginning on a lot of uh, – a lot of entry. He was there in the entry of fusion and everything. He, he just happened. He reminds me of Forrest Gump. If you watch Forrest Gump movie, you see Forrest is like, wow, he was there? Wow. Same thing with Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the only one I can think of, you know. No, it, it, it works. It, and uh, who's in your... Uh, uh, band, uh, you know, Kiss the Sky tribute band. Oh, I basically have, and they don't like when I say this, but look, it's the only way I can say it. We're, we're adults here. <laughs> I have two white guys who portray Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell 
um, I have two black guys who portray Buddy Mouse and Billy Cox. I also have a full Woodstock band, uh, like I said, costumed, equipment, and everything. And I also, uh, the Cry Love Band with Billy Cox and, and uh, Mitch Mitchell, we, we create that as well. And I wouldn't be able to do this recreation. Uh, Kiss the Sky I've been with for about, we're going on our fifth year. I've been doing the Hendrix Tribute. This is my 52nd year. I started in 1968. But in 2016, I met this guy named Mike Gotch, who produced, uh, he had a, a production of, uh, it wasn't called Kiss the Sky, it was called another name, and he needed a guitar player. So he reached out to me via, I was touring with Billy Cox, so he reached out to really uh, me via Billy Cox. And that's how we hooked up. It's a marriage made in heaven. We both had the same vision of presenting Hendrix the way he's supposed to be presented. Uh, not even Jimmy's family is doing this. Uh, this is very important to show Jimmy what he accomplished on stage as a musician, why he was important as a guitar player, because what did I mention when we first started this interview? The way the guy treated the guitar like a ritual instrument. It's very important. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it's very important. And it's very important for an audience to see that, to hear the sounds that he was able to get live, but to see the guitar treated this way. Uh, and basically to get an idea why this guy was so important as a guitar player. He didn't just stand up there and play good guitar. He, he moved, the way he moved with his body and the guitar moved with his body, he integrated the movement of his body with the guitar. Nobody else is doing today, guitar players doing today. Uh, it's important for an audience to see that. That's why Kiss the Sky is very important, and I wouldn't be able to do it uh, without the help of the producer of the show, Mike Gotch. Oh, yeah, you do put on a great show. So thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you in a couple of days. And um, let's see, what, yeah, you, you know, you've also uh, played at uh, Buddy Guy's Legends. Uh, you know, what, what is that like playing in that famous venue? And you know, but Buddy uh, was friends with Jimmy too. They both admired each oh, other's yeah, work. Sure, well, Jimmy admired Buddy Guy, man. Uh, uh, he Jimmy was a sponge. He he, you know, anybody who played their butt off, he he wanted to get that. He, he, I call him a good thief. He was able to. Oh, I'm stealing that. Ooh, I'm ooh, I'm taking that. Uh, he, he was able to do that and, and you know mix it in with his own uh, his own way. So yeah, it was it was it was really uh, pleasurable to to play there. It's mainly a blues spot, so we had to have a Hendrix blues set mainly. But uh, it it was fun. Cool. Uh, what do you think the appeal is for? Uh, the, the tribute bands, and I, I, I thought the guys from uh, Zoso were uh, very well researched uh, in 
all, all of you know the, the Gibson double neck guitar and uh, the uh, guy who plays uh, a bass and keyboards. He uh, the no quarter song that they do is you know, really was a demonstration of him being a uh, concert pianist. But you know, what do you think? A lot of these uh, the fans are looking for by you know packing these uh, uh, parks to see these uh, tribute bands. Uh, they're they're reliving it. A lot of the fans who come to see this didn't get a chance to see these bands. Uh, I saw Led Zeppelin twice, and they were horrible when I saw them. Uh, so uh, when I see the good tribute bands that I've had um, the pleasure of, uh, you know, sharing the stage with, you know, I'm really seeing these these bands at their at their best. So the the audience is really reliving that, and it's very important. Uh, for them to see to, to see that, you know what I mean? With Jimmy, it's mm-hmm. a little bit different because Jimmy had a lot more potential than just the average rock band because of the position he was in of being a black rocker. Uh, he had a little bit more potential, um, like I said, good and bad, uh, depending on who you've spoke, spoken to. So people are seeing... They have to see this. Why was he? They read about it. Okay, so why was he important? So when they come to see a Jimi Hendrix, we tried to give them that. We we uh, so so the audience can relive the magic and everything. It's the ne- it's the you know the next best thing to see in their favorite band. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, J- Jimmy, we're down to uh, ninety seconds, a minute or so. Uh, I just want to thank you for. Being such a fascinating historian, uh, you put on a, a fantastic show. Uh, you know, best wishes with the Voodoo Child, A Man His Guitar movie. Ho- hopefully, that will be out soon. Uh, you, know, it, it, you have about a minute to plug anything, and you can wrap up the show. And th- thank you again. Mark, I, I really appreciate you and Barbara uh, having me on your show. I respect both of y'all. I respect, uh, like I said, I spent time on Barbara's site. I spent a lot of time going through the different, uh, uh, you know, the different topics. And yeah, you guys are really onto something. And I wish you the best with that. Th- thank you so much. Okay, might as well just end there, and we will see everyone next week. Th- thanks again, Jimmy. T- take care. I'll see you Thursday.